sometimes you just have to let something fail. And the core piece is as long as you're learning something from that and you do it as fast as you can is the most important thing. But not everything's going to be successful. The core tenet of that is making sure you've learned from that mistake and that you don't make it again. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today, I am lucky enough to be joined by Michelle Bushman. Michelle, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for inviting me, David. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Michelle, for those of our listeners who may not be aware, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Sure. So I am the full stack CIO for American Pacific Mortgage. We're a national top 10 independent mortgage bank providing consumers with mortgage loans to purchase or refinance their homes. And we're a national company, so we're across all states, just finishing up our licensing in New York right now. Oh, exciting. And based out of Roseville, California? Yeah. Our corporate location is here in Roseville, California. Amazing. Well, I'm excited to dive more into that and excited that you guys are putting up your shingle here in New York. But to start the episode, we just like to start with just one piece of actionable advice you might look to lead the listeners with today. Yeah. So, you know, in our environment with everybody challenged with the economy, you know, obviously we can talk a little bit more about that in the mortgage sector as we go along. But what I would say to everybody is focus on what's most important to keep your business healthy. And a big piece of that is making sure you're partnering with your business peers. You know, every piece of business has some sort of underlying technology play to it these days. And so it's just super important to partner with your business partners and not just kind of work in a silo by yourself on, you know, what you're planning to deliver to the organization. Yeah. Great advice. Super pertinent. I believe to our friends in financial services, healthcare, a lot of the late adopters where IT was siloed for a long time. So yeah, great piece of advice to start the episode. Michelle, before we dive into the work that you are doing at American Pacific Mortgage. Let's talk a little bit just about you as a leader, as an executive. 
How did you start out and how did you get to the point that you are in your uh, career today? Yeah, this is always a fun story. Most anyone you talk to, you know, you go to college for thinking you're going to do one thing and then you end up doing something else. So I'm one of those. (laughs) So originally, I actually, believe it or not, wanted to be a biology teacher. But when I got out of college, I was a little tired, didn't want to go back, you know, for another yet another year of school for my credential and had a family member that worked in mortgage and said, hey, why don't you come, you know, come check it out. So I actually started my career in the mortgage industry as a junior document drawer. So I was at the end of the process where I would draw the loan documents for the borrowers. And that's kind of how I ended up getting into mortgage. And it's funny because it sucks you in and you end up staying for your whole career as I have for the most part. So I'm a little bit unique from the technology leader perspective in that I've grown up on the business side. So throughout my career, I did pretty much a lot of the different roles within the operational side of mortgage. You know, I did a little underwriting. I did processing. I actually ended, like I like to call my operational side of my career in mortgage, managing capital markets. And it was a pretty interesting where I ended up before I really transitioned over into technology is my very first boss in mortgage banking was working for this really cool dot-com company in the Bay Area called IMX Exchange. And they were looking for someone to kind of run their capital market secondary marketing because they were this new business that they were bringing to the industry. And it was basically a platform where mortgage brokers would post loans on their system from their LOS. And our system with lenders behind it would post bids on those loans. And then that loan would be locked online. And then it would follow the traditional process. So they had a subsidiary. IM Exchange had a subsidiary called IDF, I believe it was. And what that facility was is we had Wall Street investors that would actually post live pricing on that platform, but they didn't have brick and mortar to close those transactions. So that third party, you know, became a closing solution for them. And then we would deliver the tapes for them to service and own those loans. While I was working in that role, obviously we were exclusively using that software to price the loans that IMX Exchange developed and patented, in fact. And I just kept complaining. (laughs) What didn't work that it wouldn't, you know, wasn't pricing the loan right or it needed additional fields. And so that's when I got introduced to one of our patent holders, UC Berkeley professor. And he came and he talked to me and he's like, Michelle, I want you on our product team. You know, I want to, you know, want to learn from you and how else we need to build the software. So as my career kind of progressed at IMX, there was a point at which the venture capital company decided that they didn't want to be associated as like a mortgage bank, but really a technology vendor. So they decided to close that third party closing solution and they brought me into the main company and I managed what they called their trading desk at the time. So I had a group of folks and this is way back in the days. This is before the internet was really big. I mean, you used, you know, a dial up with IBM Global Works to get to the network, right? For this solution that was installed on the endpoint. And so you didn't have a lot of adoption, which is not uncommon in mortgage or healthcare, right? We tend to be, because we're regulated, we tend to be a lot slower to adopt technology solutions. So, you know, this was back in the, in the nineties, late nineties. And so we actually would do the work for the lender every day. We would go in and put the rates into the system and give them a call when they had a trade because this was all brand new to the industry. Again, as I continued to work with the developers, I ended up moving my way around from 
managing the trading desk to working on the product development team. And so I actually helped define the next generation of our software, which went off the fat client into the web. And it was so fun. I just found my passion there. I have to tell you, David, it was so fun building a solution that I could visualize in my head that actually made a difference, you know, to our customers. And it was so fun too, because back in the day, a lot of these tools weren't available in the web. We were building things from scratch with true code because it was so early in the day. And so, yeah, we got our patent. Um, we did a lot of different off solutions, obviously, as well. We started to private label our solution. We built an actual API for one customer. You know, and this is before web APIs existed. Uh, they wanted to leverage our, our product and pricing engine, but build their own GUI on the front end. But it was just so much fun to actually solve problems with software. And so that's where I started getting in more on the technical side, more on the software side initially and in, in defining solutions and building technology. I was there with that company for about 10 years. The last five years that I was there, I was the acting CEO reporting up to the venture capitalists that owned our company while we actually went through some patent infringement lit litigation. So our company actually, although I look back and the company failed technically, it became a patent holding company. We had several organizations that actually um, settled with us, such as Priceline and a few others. But LendingTree was actually the one that held out, went all the way to court. That was a very interesting learning environment for me. But at the end of the day, LendingTree was found to be willfully infringing on our patent. And at that point, the venture capital company decided to just be a patent holding company. So I wound down operations for them. And like I said, you know, I look back on that experience. For the 10 years I worked there, I never could have paid for the education I received, the opportunities that I was given, and the knowledge that I gained just across every domain, you know, running an organization top to bottom and, you know, through litigation. And so that was right about the time they decided to close operations was in the credit crunch, you know, back in 2009-ish. And so where from there, I ended up rounding my career out a bit by going and working for a vendor on the default loan side. So we were working, I basically went to go work for that organization and built out their software and their processes to serve the HARP and the HAMP programs that came out during that period of time to basically continue to work to try and keep consumers in their homes rather than to foreclose. So I worked for several years doing that, working alongside of a lot of the industry agencies where they had default portfolios and I would manage that directly. And that's where I learned all about vendor management, security operations, all sorts of wonderful things that, again, I couldn't have paid for that education. So that rounded me out on project management, RFP processes, security, policy, procedure, risk, all those great things I learned during that time period that I worked in that space. And then I decided to move on and try being self-employed for a year. And so I went and I did some consulting for LPS. They did a lot with default title orders. And so I got to learn that part of the business, which I wasn't familiar with as well. And I was able to work between their Dallas and their Irvine, California offices to align processes. At one point, they had their software break out into two different code bases. And so they basically had two different versions of code working, one in Dallas and one in California. And so basically what I did is I came in and did an assessment of their processes, you know, made some recommendations based on which code base we should build off of to streamline it 
so that, you know, operations could be handled in Texas the same as they could be in California and aligned all of that. And then I also um, played a little bit with, they had a escrow closing company as well. And I did a a massive upgrade to their escrow software while I was there, moving them up to a newer modern version in the web. So I did a lot of work there and then kind of came back around into mortgage again, working for a large loan origination system called Mortgage Cadence at the time. They got purchased by Accenture. And so there I got to work with deploying enterprise loan origination systems to large customers all across the United States. So, you know, spent a lot of time working with different customers, banks, credit unions, even, you know, some agencies, state agencies as well that were leveraging that software and did that for a while. And then I was really getting tired of the travel. I would say from like 2008, till 2014, I was pretty much gone three weeks out of the month from my house just because of where all the clients were and the customers and the offices. And so I'd been kind of trying to find something local that maybe I wouldn't have to travel as much and ran across American Pacific Mortgage. And it's a funny story. I had interviewed with them at the same time I was interviewing with Mortgage Cadence. And they had offered me a temporary position for a while because the market was still a little bit soft for them. And of course, I was you know coming off being self-employed and really wanted to have benefits for my family because <laughs> medical insurance is very expensive when you buy it on your own. I ended up choosing the mortgage cadence. And then about six months into that role, that APM called me up and said, hey, we're looking for you know someone to run technology. At the time, they were thinking CIO, but they decided on a VP type of role. And I said, you know what? I'll take it. I can show you what I can do. I love growing companies. And so I came in and I've been with APM. It'll be coming up on 10 years in January and you know, made my way to SVP and then to chief information officer. And as I'd mentioned, I'm the full stack chief information officer. So I'm responsible for everything, security, infrastructure, support, software development reporting. So I got the whole works rolling up under me here at APM. And it's funny, I used to, you know, and that's where really the last almost 10 years is really where I've picked up my infrastructure, hardware, networking experience. You know, that was the one thing that I came into APM, which kind of excited me is like, that was the last kind of area I needed exposure to and experience to kind of round myself out across, you know, all the domains that a CIO or a CISO or a you know CTO would have. And so it's been great. I t- tell people all the time, I learned more than I ever wanted to know about hardware networking. But at the same point, you know, it's been great. And I think, you know, to be honest, David, too, I think that's where I ended up leaning towards the technology side versus the operations side is that I'm constantly learning. I love to, you know, consume new information and see how things can change and visualize like, ooh, look at what we could really do for the industry or, you know, what we can do for our company in general. And so I get really excited about those things that, especially the software side, what can we really do to implement here to make our end customer have a great experience, make their day easy and get rid of some of the monotony that you might have to do leveraging automation, right? And all those things that I do at American Pacific Mortgage, you know, wherever I can save costs and create more efficiency allows us to improve the pricing and rates, which will enable more consumers to potentially purchase a home. So, you know, that's something that that I take seriously, not only to keep the company healthy from a profit and loss perspective, but also to be able to make a difference to where we can make a difference to, you know, get people to actually 
get that dream of home ownership to become a reality. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I think that's incredibly important. And I think that it's cool to hear that you came from the, you know, the business side of the house, if you will. I, you know, I think that experience is invaluable such that, you know, I'd personally much rather have a CIO with that experience versus the hardware experience because, you know, as a leader, I'm always trying to hire people that are smarter than me in regard to, you know, certain aspects of technology or, or engineers or things of that nature. But I think certain things that you pick up on experientially, especially the benefit of really understanding an industry or a business end to end helps you conceptualize kind of like you're just alluding to how technology can better facilitate processes, remove bottlenecks, create a better customer experience. That's very cool. What would you say, Michelle, is one of the most important things that you learned over the course of your journey personally or professionally? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? So this one probably sounds cheesy. A lot of people will say it, but it's so true that family needs to be first. We all work super hard, right? You know, and especially as you're climbing the ladder, you work really hard. And, you know, one thing that my father used to always tell me is like, I'm super proud of you, but make sure you're balancing your life. You know, kids grow up fast. You lose those times, right? And I will tell you, you know, I've been in this industry long enough. And no matter how hard you work and how valuable you are, if the circumstances change, you may lose your job. And, you know, this happened back in the mortgage space is very volatile at times, right? And so, you know, you can give 110% to your work, but you really do. Your family is the one thing that's always there for you. And for most of us, that's what we're working for to begin with. And so really trying to always keep that in perspective to make sure that my family comes first. And that can be difficult sometimes, right? Particularly in a, you know, when you're running a company, obviously it's a balance, right? But those experiences you can't get back. And those are the most important people that will always be there for you. And so no matter how hard and, you know, how successful you want to be, there has to be that balance. And I have to say, that's one of the things I love about American Pacific Mortgage is they are very much focused on culture, family, families first, caring about our people. And it's very unique, actually, I would have to say in the mortgage space. We're very transparent with our employees about the status of the company, what's happening, just because we are a cyclical business. And we are truly about, you know, one of our founders who used to be our chairman of the board, who's now just a board member. I just remember him when I came in, he's like, make sure you're balancing your life. I mean, it's coming from the top, you know, make sure you're not overdoing it, Michelle. You know, we want you to be here a long time and not get burnt out. Make sure you're taking time for your family. And, you know, he's always said, we hire families, not employees. And that's how we see it. And so, you know, we're always being super careful because we don't want to hire a bunch of people and then you know, have to lay a bunch of people off. So we have some unique things that we do in our space around, you know, temporaries, contractors and things like that are more about 20% of our workforce so that when we do have fluctuations in the market cycles, we aren't providing jobs saying, oh, we're, you know, you're going to have a job today and three months later you don't. That's just not how our culture works. And I will have to tell you, it's very unique. You know, I've been in a lot of different organizations. And that's one of the things I love about APM is they truly do live by their cultural values and they're very transparent. And obviously it was during COVID, we actually converted over to an ESOP company as well. So the company actually provided shares to its employees. So now we are an employee-owned company. Wow, very cool. Well, I want to kind of dive into 
more about American Pacific Mortgage. The last question I just have for you personally is, is there a time that you either had a project fail or a time that you ran into something that was particularly difficult personally or otherwise, but you ultimately took away a profound lesson, like a moment of growth that you recall that that you might want to share with everyone today? Yeah. So sometimes even if you know something's going to fail, you got to let it fail. I had a very differing opinion at one point on a particular project as far as which product to select for a particular need. And, you know, it was a great vendor, but they weren't prepared for the solution they were trying to deliver. It hadn't been really market tested. And, you know, I had a lot of concerns just with previous experience of how that was going to impact my team as well as the organization. You know, one of the things that we as IT leaders are always pressed on is, okay, when you buy something like a software solution, it needs to have a return on that investment. What are we getting that's going to make, you know, either the process less expensive or more automated or improve the customer experience? Because that has value too. It's a little bit less tangible, but it does. And I knew that instead of decreasing expenses and improving operational efficiency, that by deploying this, it was going to do the opposite. That it's actually going to cost us more money because on the back end, the system wasn't prepared for production yet. It was still super early. And, you know, I did insert myself. I said, please let me help you negotiate the contract, you know, because I'm a big believer. The business needs to make the choice on the solution that they feel is going to support their need. My job is to go in and make recommendations based on the architecture, the longevity potentially based on, you know, how old the technology is or not, how well it's going to integrate with our other solutions. Is it going to, you know, be something that we can support without costing us a fortune? All those kinds of things. And then, of course, security. Is that a secure solution? Does it meet our security standards? And then I can give business perspective, too, just because I've done the job, too, which is helpful, I think, sometimes to my business peers. But at the end of the day, I want them to own it because they own the adoption and the success or failure of it. I own the success or failure of the deployment, but they really own, you know, the processes. So I let the business make those choices. What I ask to be as a partner at the table, though, If, in fact, they choose a solution that maybe I don't agree with from a technical perspective and, you know, aside from security, because anything security related, you know, it's not going to happen, right? (laughs) But outside of that, maybe I don't like the integration or they're behind and they don't have APIs for me to grab data or whatever it might be. I just want to be involved in that contract so we can put some measures into place to get that delivered by that vendor. And if not, have an out, right? So that we aren't stuck in that contract. So what ended up happening as I get that contract the day before they want to sign it, I provide feedback. And obviously, a lot of what I asked for didn't get put into the contract. So, you know, all along, we're just running into barriers. And what I learned is let it speak for itself. I don't need to say it. Just let it happen. But do my best to make the, you know, what we did, it's like we knew it wasn't going to work, but we also didn't say we're not going to work our darndest to try to make it work, right? escalating all of those issues to the top. But sometimes, like I said, you just kind of have to let it happen. You're doing your best to make it not fail. But once it does, the hope at that point is that maybe in the next interaction that there'll be some more ears listening and collaboration around how we protect ourselves, you know, from a contractual perspective to make sure we get what we really need and not add more cost to our process by picking a vendor you know, that we feel pretty confident in, but we haven't, you know, 
test it out that the solution's actually going to work. So what I found from that, obviously, I learned a few lessons from a leadership perspective of how to handle it a little bit differently, but also just really trying to be out there. Please partner with me. I mean, that's what I ask for. I don't want to say no to everything. I don't like being the cop. What I want to be is a partner to help you solve a problem and let's work together on it and listen to both sides of the concerns, right? But sometimes, like I said, sometimes you just have to let something fail. And the core piece is as long as you're learning something from that and you do it as fast as you can is the most important thing. But not everything's going to be successful. The core tenet of that is making sure you've learned from that mistake and that you don't make it again. 100%. So before we get into APM, Michelle, I just like to ask favorite book either that you've read recently or all time at your choice? So I do like to read the Bible quite a bit. So I would say like, if you're asking me from that perspective, that's my favorite book because it has all of life's lessons that you would ever need. One of the books that I actually really enjoyed reading too was Jesus as CEO. It was a very interesting book. I read that years ago when I first was starting in my leadership roles. And it's kind of an oxymoron, but I like to try to lead from that perspective. I'm a servant leader. And I care about everybody, sometimes too much. I think one person told me at one point, quit being their mom. (laughs) But that's one of them. And then I'm also a big consumer of cheap garbage fiction. (laughs) I love to, you know, occasionally read, you know, I've done the Harry Potter. I've done, you know, the Twilight book, you know, all the different books. You know, what was fun when my daughter was growing up is it gave us something to talk about. We'd read the same book. But those are kind of a way to just relax and, you know, unplug for sure. Love that. Um, I got to check that out. The Jesus is CEO. Jesus as Jesus as CEO. All right. We'll add yeah. it to the list. Love it, <laughs> Michelle. So you're CIO, full stack CIO at APM. Talk to me a little bit about your vision for the organization. Now you've been there 10 years and maybe some of the key initiatives that you guys are working on now. Sure. So one of the good things that comes out of down markets is it really makes everybody step back and take a look at what you're doing in your operation, where you have duplicate processes, where you might have uh, multiple solutions where you need one, right? So we've really been working on streamlining process. My comment to our team has always been that the more bifurcated processes we have, the less likely is for me to be able to automate things. We have to have a good standardized process so we have good data so that then I can automate process. So we've been really working on streamlining processes. We're looking at a variety of our tools. So I'm kind of like working in parallel right now. I'm managing, I like to call it my Frankenstein, (laughs) of all the different solutions we've patched together, right, to deliver a solution out. You know, our main, you know, loan origination system, obviously, points of sales, our data, you know, all those things. So we're continuing to refine that and do small process improvements. But what we're really doing right now is looking foundationally at all the different solutions we're using. We have created a conceptual document, basically flow of kind of where we'd like to get in the future, how we want to leverage the existing technologies that are out there to really completely change how we do business every day. So we're working on the future. Now, where the challenge comes in that is in a market like this, where you don't have a lot of extra bodies or extra profits to put into innovation and change. So that's moving a bit slow, but we really are planning for the future. What are those solutions that we want to plug in? We do plan to um, next year, our loan origination system is in the final stages of getting a portion of our personas or our users into a fully web-based solution which will really allow us to change how they interact with the system, create a better experience. 
So next year, probably in Q2 or so, we're actually going to do a re-implementation of our loan origination system and completely change those processes and create new, you know, the web screens and really innovate and change the experience for our loan officers and our processors, as well as our consumers. We want to make that experience so seamless that, you know, if a new loan officer comes on board and they've originated loans before, I don't have to train them on the solution because it's very intuitive if you're familiar with originating loans. And on the same aspect of that, we want to make sure that the consumer experience is as simple as possible. And then also create that experience to where the consumer can do as much or as little as they want based on what their, you know, desire is. It's that omni-channel experience, right? How much support do you want through the process or do you want to run on your own? At what point do you want a loan officer versus, you know, being in the very beginning? So really creating an experience for a consumer that can go all the way to like a consumer direct all the way through, you know, the retail, which is where we mostly live today, where we have our loan officers that are handholding borrowers through the process. So that omni-channel customer experience, leveraging automation as much as possible, but with the human touch, you know, creating and leveraging an experience in that software capability, but still having that human touch because, you know, we are truly believe that there may be some more savvy borrowers that are comfortable going end to end all by themselves with nobody there to coach them along the way or explain things. But for most Americans, this is the largest financial transaction they ever do in their lifetime. And so we truly believe that there does need to be that human touch as part of that for advice, a trusted advisor, explaining the process to make sure that the consumer is fully educated and knows what they're signing, what they're committing to, you know, and understands that process thoroughly. So, you know, we're working on that. One of the biggest things, though, that we will probably start kicking off early next year is moving towards e-notes. So you hear about that a lot in the mortgage space. E-notes are actually very efficient for the lender, very cost-effective for us from a back-end perspective. And then, of course, you know, make it even easier. Let the borrower sign as many documents as they can even before they come in to do their final notarization. So that's a big one. And then we're also really modernizing our UCAS solution, so our phone solution, along with our contact center, so that we can provide a one-stop shop, whether it's a consumer or one of our employees looking for support, to really leverage technology, have that support process automated across the different units. You know, one of the biggest challenges that I see is we have a bunch of different phone numbers for different services you might need and people don't know where to go for help. I envision having that singular portal. And as part of that portal, you've got your bot technology, you've got your knowledge article, you know, everything you can to deflect and self-serve. And then when you get to that point, being able to route that to the appropriate party now that you've got enough information to really um, help them. So that's another big project. We're just in the very beginning stages of migrating off of our current contact center and um, UCAS. In fact, we're going live on the 13th of December. (laughs) And yeah, just a couple of weeks away. And then the next phase, we'll be building out the portal. And then the third phase, we'll be starting to connect all the data points. Because the goal there as well is to create that personal experience for the customer that calls in. So we know more about them when we talk to them on the phone. Yeah, 100%. We do that all day. So it's great that you guys are walking down that path. What about some of the biggest challenges that you guys are facing as an organization? We kind of touched on some of them, just like the market and and so on. What would you say? Yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest challenge right now for any independent mortgage bank right now is that, you know, for the last 
almost two years, the market has obviously flipped upside down. So, and this in particular is probably one of the worst that we've had in probably the 50 years they've been tracking histories. And there's a variety of reasons why. First of all, we came off of two years record production, right? More than 50% increase in business, right? For the whole industry over a two-year period during COVID and when rates were so low, you know, below 3% for the most part. So overnight, practically, that stopped. That faucet turned off because of how quickly the feds have increased rates. So overnight, you almost lost 50% of your business, right? And so the market's been going through that. Add, you know, insult to injury, the 10 years inverted as well. So you can't even sell arm loans because the adjustable rate is almost as much as a fixed rate. So that makes it hard to get customers into a loan. Then you've got affordability challenges because of home prices in certain areas are so high. And now with interest rates high, people need to bring in more cash to get into the door, right? And it's harder to qualify. You've got consumer sentiment that why would I pay 7% when I'm just going to wait till it gets back below three again, which probably is not going to happen, to be frank. (laughs) We're probably going to start sitting more into a normal area, maybe in 2020, late 2024, early 25, we might be sitting around 5%, maybe. That's my guesstimate, you know, based on what we're hearing from, you know, industry folks that track all of this. And then the last piece you have is an inventory challenge since the credit crunch back in the 2008-9 period. Home builders stopped building a lot of homes. And so you have house shortages. And then add to the to point here, David, that in 2020, 2021, we had probably 70% of homeowners refinance their transactions to 3% or less. They're not moving up. So you you don't even have existing home inventory, right? Because people are going to like, hey, instead of doing that, maybe I'll just modify my home and stay here because I'm not going to go pay 7% to do a new property. So you don't have people moving up or scaling down because they don't want to lose that interest rate. So there's this huge amount of different pieces happening, right, all at the same time that have made it extremely a business challenging environment. Overall, the industry itself was probably 100,000 jobs overstaffed, you know, and so obviously you've seen a lot of that over the last couple of years from mortgage companies. And unfortunately, we weren't immune to that either. As much as we try not to do that, you know, that large of a shift in business makes an an unfortunate impact, right? So the challenge for us, obviously, and, and now you're headed into winter. So when you're in a purchase market, winter is when things settle down a bit, right? You don't have a lot of people, particularly in the Midwest or the East Coast that move during the winter or purchase homes. So, you know, we're in for a few months of tough roads ahead of us still to get through our winter months and then back into the spring. And then next year should look a little bit better. It'll be it. The MBA is forecasting a little bit more production, but not significant. But, you know, hopefully 2025 will get into a more normal market. But what the challenge is there is obviously making a profits one, right? You're making sure, you know, that you're watching what you spend, how much, you know, it costs us to manufacture that loan and what can we do to reduce that expense to make sure we stay profitable. And then... For me, the challenge is not having that additional budget necessarily to be investing in our future, which we need to be doing now, right? So that's a challenge. And so I'm just, I'm moving the ball along as fast as I can in my spare time, you know, to make sure that we have that plan and we're starting to move forward so that when that next market shift happens, we can leverage the technology platforms that we have to scale our business overnight rather than necessarily having the same ratio of humans needed that we did like in 2020, 2021. 
You know, we really want to leverage the technology to get, you know, what I envision is having a mortgage process that's really exception processing, that the system does most of that work for our folks. And all they're doing is looking at the things that either don't meet the rule or are within tolerance, or they're the things that the human has to make those subjective um, decisions on rather than um, a system being able to do it, um, which really would enable us to scale our business, close loans faster. You know, one of the things I, I look at is like, you can go in and buy a $100,000 car and be out in a couple hours. We can't do that with a home. Now, there's some obvious reasons, right? There's, a, you know, the collateral has to be validated, you know, all those kinds of things, different than buying a, you know, a car off the line that we know the value of. But I really do believe that with the technology and the way things are changes that we should be able to eventually get to a seven to 10 day, you know, seven to 10 day close. And so, you know, how can we build a process that allows for that and that can scale for sure with uh, volume shifts? Right. Very oh. cool. So, Michelle, I have a couple of last questions here. One would be, what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes in the mortgage industry and or how do you think some of the newer innovative technologies will impact the landscape? Sure. So I'm super excited at this point in mortgage based where the OCR, ICR and data extraction technology finally is at. We deal so much with documents. That's always been a challenge, right? So getting to digital, you know, I'm a big believer all a mortgage is is a bunch of data points that's put through calculations, right? And validations to say, first of all, is this person credit worthy and can they afford to repay the mortgage? And then the second piece is the property worth what it's stated as so that if for some reason that doesn't happen, am I going to get, you know, do I have the collateral I need to somewhat cover myself, right? That it's all data and it's all calculations, engines, you know, things like that. So I do believe that we're at a precis, you know, I've been going to e-mortgage conferences since I think 2000 or 2001, and we're finally like talking about deploying e-notes, you know, it's taken that long, almost my whole career. And so what I envision for our industry is to continue to develop around that so that we can get to a true exception processing, continue connecting data points so that a borrower maybe doesn't even have to give you any documentation. And there are solutions, you know, there's a lot of that available, but there's still documents that sometimes are required, you know. So how do we get to all the data we need that the borrower can, you know, release to us at the very beginning of that transaction that will create an experience for them where they practically don't have to give us anything? <laughs> and we get all of that in data. And by doing that, there's a variety of things that we do to cut costs when we have a lot of check the checker processes in mortgage, right? It's like, did someone make a mistake before you? Is everything, you know, that can be automated. And if you're going to source data and not data that's provided, the reduction in fraud is going to go down. You're not going to have to do some of those checks that you normally would. And now you can actually automate that stare and compare process as well, because you have what's in your LOS system. And let's say you've got your loan documents. First of all, if you're doing them electronically and they're signed electronically, very little chance of error, right? So you can use AI in that to build some rules and check everything. And then you're only looking at a few things before you close that loan, right? Same thing on before you sell it to an investor. All of that stuff can be, you can pull the data off the documents now and compare it to what's in your system and create exception reporting. So I really believe, again, it takes us forever in the mortgage. And part of it is, I think, is cyclical is how much we have to invest. But we are very, you know, in the next five to seven years, really, we have to be in a digital mortgage space. 
getting everything, you know, automated through the system with data so that we can be more cost efficient and provide the experience that the consumer is looking for at the speed that they want and still at a price point that they can afford and that we can still make a small profit. You know, we have to be starting to adopt that technology a lot heavier than the industry has in the past in order to get there. So I'm super excited about the possibilities and, you know, watching lots of vendors, there's new LOSs popping up that are data centric. And so really watching all those things to see where we get. And I am super hopeful that I will really see a full digital (laughs) e-mortgage before I retire one day here. (laughs) Love it. I don't think it's, I think you will. I think you will. So Michelle, this has been awesome. Last question I just like to ask all my guests is if you could go back five, 10, or even 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Don't be afraid to speak your mind, you know, in a respectful way if you disagree and have that confidence in yourself. The confidence that you know what you're talking about and that you're able to do what you say you can do. I found that, you know, as a young woman, I didn't have nearly the confidence to step up and say the things that I would want to say that would have been great contributions, right? I was always afraid of either the failure of it or having someone say that was stupid, you know, and if I could change that, I would say, don't be afraid. That's how innovation happens. If you have some thoughts like that, you know, and I was always afraid to do that at a larger table with all these executives afraid. Oh my gosh, you know, there's all these executives at the table, but you know what? They're just people like you and me. They aren't anything, you know, uh, you know, crazy. And they're looking for that. They're looking for people to speak up and, and provide different perspectives. And, um, I, I used to be afraid to put myself out there a little bit. Or when I did, then I'd have that feeling like, Oh gosh, you know, that you doubt yourself, right? Don't doubt yourself. Most of the time we all have really good instincts. And you know what? Maybe sometimes we will say something that's totally silly and stupid, but there's going to be other times where you're going to say something and it's going to be like, wow, nobody thought of that. And we should really think about it. And you're right. Let's, you know, dig into that. It's just, you know, don't be afraid of that. Put yourself out there because I think a lot of people don't. And a lot of people probably have some really great ideas that they don't share. Yeah. I love that. Or I'm going to get feedback that helps me level up to that next level. Like you said, that's where... Mm -hmm innovation happens, right? Yeah. So yeah. great advice to end the episode, Michelle. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, you're very welcome. And thanks. It was a great chat with you. So thank you again for inviting me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in and we will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.